everybody, welcome back to the Ohioan Podcast Network. Craig Schaub here with George Thomas, Akron Beacon Journal sports journalist and film critic. George, how are you doing today? I'm still on vacation, so that's a plus. <laughs> that is. Well, it's uh, it's the holiday season. Blockbuster movies are coming out left and right. We've had F9. Now we have Black Widow, which is, it seems like it's been talked about for years. The wait got pushed back a little bit last year because of COVID. It's been about two years or so since we've seen a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Was the wait worth it here for Black Widow, the new Scarlett Johansson action adventure movie? I don't know if the wait was worth it. and I, I, I say that for one reason. My initial impression of it was negative. Okay. Um, it's, it's like two hours and 20 minutes, I want to say. And at, at parts of it, it seemed like a slog. But knowing that it didn't open until this week, and, you know, I saw it uh, 10 days ago. I, you know, it, it's one of those I ruminated over. Okay. And I went back, I, I actually took notes. I, I went back through my notes and it's like, I'm pointing out all this good stuff. And the only thing I could come up with is the direction is a bit choppy. So is it worth the wait? It's not on the level of the first Avengers film. And I don't know where it ranks in the rest of the, the, the MCU canon. But we have a film where there are a lot of positives to it. Least of all is which it's Scarlett Johansson, who finally gets the spotlight she's probably deserved all along. Um, and, you know, they, they give her an interesting origin story. And mind you, I'm not a comics guy, so I don't know how true it is to, to the comic book character. But it turns out um, Natasha was part of a uh, family, a cell plant in the United States, grew up in Ohio. Hey, yeah. that could even be Sandusky, Fremont, wherever. Yeah. And, and her, her, her quote-unquote parents and sisters had to be extracted from the United States after their mission was complete. They nearly died in the process. But the, the person who ran their mission um, noticed something in the two girls that he liked. And he basically turned them into Russian assassins. Okay. Now, we know that Natasha got that from her, her story and everything and Iron Man and her introduction to Iron Man to everything. But her still remained in. Now, this takes place just after Infinity War. So right, you're going to have to right. go back to the timeline and figure that out. But it, it makes for some interesting conflict with her sister, who's, who at the beginning of the film, before being freed of her, of, of the control this guy had over, was still an assassin. And we get to see some sibling rivalry. Sure. And stuff like that, that kind of conflict going on. And overall, that, that was interesting to me. You know, it's it shows their conflict in knowing that what they thought was family wasn't really family. And eventually you get to this question, 
through all the action and everything, which is what most of the audience is going to show up for. Right. Well, what exactly is a family? Now, to a certain degree, that was answered in the Avengers films. You know what I mean? It's right. answered again right. for her here. And there's a message about female empowerment, as you might expect, all this stuff in, in the male patriarchy. Well, there can't be a female patriarchy, but you know what I mean. The patriarchy. Right. And all those elements are intriguing, interesting. They're handled fairly well. It's just at times the breakneck pace is too much and it doesn't serve everything else very well. And that's why I dinged it. So should you see it? Absolutely. Because Scarlett Johansson and, and Florence Pugh. Florence Pugh. And I liked her in the wrestling movie she was in. But um, yeah. They they cut it up real nice. They've got a nice chemistry, and, and and it works. And of course, it obviously sets up something down the line in the MCU. But overall, I ended up giving it a B, positive review. I could appreciate the, the the intelligence of the script, the the element of the Americans, the FX series that was that was on for years, that ran for years. All that I could appreciate all that. Right. It's just that the, the direction led it astray a little bit. Well, and you, you mentioned it was a little choppy, and you just mentioned, you know, the, the direction maybe not being up to par. Kate Shortland is the director here. She's normally known for TV series, so this is really a lot to take on. Not that she's not capable, but is do you think maybe this was too much for, uh, you know, like Patty Jenkins obviously did the Wonder Woman movies, and she had previous film you know film directing you know credits do you think maybe the transition from tv series to blockbuster action film is a little bit too big of a jump there maybe for someone like her not not necessarily i mean you mentioned patty jenkins now the first wonder her first wonder woman film was was awesome the second one not so good. yeah so right. no, <laughs> right. you know, just, things happen you know what I mean? We don't know the entire process, but ultimately right. her name is on the film, so she gets dinged for it. Sure. Well, and obviously, you know, the, the expectations are this is going to be a box office boom for, for Marvel. It's been a while, obviously. They have a lot of other projects in the pipeline. Obviously, they've been focusing a lot on the Disney Plus series, you know, the Loki series or WandaVision Falcon and Winter Soldier. So it's it's good to see them return to theaters to maybe see if they can reinvigorate the box office even more than maybe F9 was able to. Uh, do you feel like this is, you know, th that was always been sort of the knock against the quote unquote female lead action movie that it couldn't do well at the box office. Do you feel like this is going to outperform or at least outdo what maybe expectations are for a side character in the Avengers franchise getting their own movie? I mean, number one, everybody underestimated what a quote-unquote side character would do with Iron Man. Right. So I'm never going to do that again. They, they did the same thing with Black Panther. Never right. going to do that again. The big question for me is, it's in theaters, but they're releasing it on Disney Plus, the premiere tier for 30 bucks. Right. How do they, from, from the weekend box office, remains to be seen? That's the big question to me. I mean, I have to imagine that Disney will will view anything over $60 million this weekend as a success, given 
that they have it on their their streaming platform sure. as well. I mean, I think um, Fast and Furious last week took in seventy million dollars. That's been viewed as a success. Although I hate this this post pandemic record crap. I keep hearing. Well, <laughs> get out. But I I think that ultimately ta- tells the tale of 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 of, of the success of this film. Do you think do you think Disney felt pressure to have this on Premier Access because it's been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and then everybody wondered, oh, are you just gonna release it on Disney Plus like we've seen the the Warner same day release? You know, I guess this was their compromise to put it on Disney Plus, but with the Premier Access, do you feel like they just felt enough pressure that they they decided, okay, we're going to let it be available at home as well for people who aren't comfortable going to the theater? I think as long as there is a disruptive variant out there that you're going to see a lot of people still be cautious. You know what I mean? Let's let's, there are parts of of, of the country where. uh, uh, vaccination hesitancy rules, and they're hedging their bets. I'm right. sure that's got a lot to do with it. That makes uh, sense, yeah. If there's one thing I've learned about Disney over the years, sure, they like quality projects, but you know what Disney loves even more? Money. So yeah. <laughs> It's funny you bring that up because uh, before we uh, before we hopped on here, I was kind of scrolling through some of the uh, the Disney Plus offerings with my wife, and I'm like, oh, they have the new Monsters at Work series that just premiered, and you know, obviously they have Loki and all that. And I, I told her I was like, because she wants to watch The Little Mermaid. Ever since your negative review of Luca, she wants to watch The Little Mermaid with me, and I'm like, we'll watch it at some point, but we don't need to watch it right now. But I, I kept telling her I was like. You know, Disney kind of like shoots themselves in the foot because they make great movies like The Little Mermaid and then they make The Little Mermaid 2 and then they make like, you know, Peter Pan 2 and they make all these like, you know, uh, Aladdin 2. And it just feels like they they kind of dumb down their success by having these money grab sequels, whether it's straight to DVD or whether it's on Disney Plus right now or, you know, at, at, at that time, maybe, uh, you know, maybe they rolled one out in the theaters every once in a while. I mean, it, those those kind of sequels are are the animation isn't as good, the music it certainly never right. been as good. I mean, it, I I I guess I I pretty much understood what they were about back in the late '90s or was it mid '90s when they released a, a directed video sequel of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> right. Now, now, mind you. I consider that a low-key classic. It's right. got some wonderful dark music. Mm-hmm. It's got some wonderful dark human or humor. It's just dark in general. I mean, there was an article in the New York Times I read recently where it's 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 it should be considered the best G-rated R movie ever. <laughs> and they made a sequel to this thing. Right. Like and it didn't do that well at the box office. It was a hit, right. but for all those reasons, it didn't do that. It didn't do Lion King numbers. It didn't right. do Aladdin numbers. It didn't do Little Mermaid numbers, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, they're about that that making a buck thing. 
Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I we were um, as I was scrolling through, you know, we thought, oh, Beauty and the Beast, obviously it's a classic, the animated uh, film, but they also made a sequel in which they it's like a three short story sequel that was made '98, and I'm like, why? And then I looked at the 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 little title picture they have with it, and the Beast is still the Beast, and I, I asked my wife, I was like, isn't the Beast a human now? Like, is, does he turn in? I mean, is this like a you know, a prequel or something. It just, it didn't make sense, but yeah, you're right. I think uh, Disney likes getting money and, you know, those are, it's, it's easy to take some of those old properties and, you know, we'll look at what they're doing now with the live action stuff, like the live action Lion King or, you know, things like that, where they're, they're really making a lot of extra money off of some of their past properties. And it's so, it's so sad because when Disney and Pixar make original content, they usually hit it out of the park. Yeah, absolutely. They normally nail it, and of course, even in that realm, that sometimes they'll they'll take it too far. Like, I was good after Toy Story three. I don't know about you. <laughs> I was good, yeah. and then they yeah, give I us. Four I, mean, and I, yeah. I can imagine that they're going to have as many Toy Stories as they can possibly churn out. I mean, I will say that they. They, they tend to find a way to make at least a good movie, whether it's better than the original one or two or three, you know, but yeah, you're right. They, they probably could have stopped after a couple and unfortunately the money's just there and why do, you know, I mean, that's, that's the way Disney is right now. So I like to see more, you know, they have the, the new uh, trailer out for their new movie coming out this uh, fall, which kind of celebrates Colombian culture. So yeah, I'd like to see them, you know, do more original stuff. I just I miss the, uh, the old days of Pixar, where it was just one one year after another, great movie after great movie. So I'd like to see Disney and Pixar do that. Notice, I think that's a Walt Disney features animation only, and not Pixar. So right, that I think so. There, there's a big difference there. There is, yes. Well, uh, obviously, you can see uh, Black Widow, Georgia, enjoyed it there after maybe marinating on it for a little bit. So that's good to see. Uh, you can see it in theaters or, of course, on Premier Access on Disney+. Plus. But speaking of streaming, we have to, we go right to a completely streaming-only film, and that's New Sudden Move. Uh, this is the, I don't know, it seems like the 20th film that Steven Soderbergh has made in the last two years. I mean, he just... He just cranks it out, doesn't he? I mean, does he ever take a break after he had that little four-year retirement? Yeah, I, this is the first thing I've seen from him in a while, so I'm okay. going gonna, gonna to plead ignorance on that. Okay. Uh, Did you see Logan? I, I know he had the he had he's responsible for the girlfriend experience on on one of the cable networks, and I thought he was devoting all of his time and energy to that. So, I, I, this is the first thing I've seen from him in a while, I'll be honest with you. Okay. If it hadn't um, said a film by Steven Soderbergh and it hadn't <laughs> had Don Cheadle and, and, and Benicio Del Toro in it, it would have just been another movie to me. So Right. Yeah, and this, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if you saw Logan Lucky. That's kind of the movie that he made that. came I, back. Um, okay. I very much enjoyed Logan Lucky. Um, the, laund the Laundromat and Let Them All Talk, I have not seen. Those were two movies that came out in 2019 in 2020 respectively. He also had the movie that he shot completely on iPhone, High Flying Bird. So this guy, I mean, I, I will say this, he is about as you know creative as any director working today. And, you know, obviously he retired for four years and he said, I'm, I'm getting back into it. Um, but he's, you know, he's kind of a, an anomaly as a director. He's, you know, uh, 
two-time Oscar-winning or Oscar-nominated director, and he won uh, when he was nominated for Aaron Brockovich in Traffic, although I don't know if Aaron Brockovich deserved an Oscar nomination for him, but, you know, pretty cool, uh, you know, honor. We've seen, like, Jamie Foxx was nominated uh, in, in supporting in, in lead actor one year. Scarlett Johansson, who we just talked about, uh, did that a couple of years ago as well. So, but they didn't change the rules on, uh, on directors because Soderbergh kind of broke the mold a little bit there. I don't know what you think about no sudden move, so I'll let you kind of get into it, and then I'll share my thoughts. I just I've literally just watched it, so let's uh, let's compare notes here. Let, let's try this. I didn't remember Logan Lucky because it didn't impress me. Okay, me I like Logan Lucky. I, I ultimately I liked it, but it was forgettable for me. And you're not used to forgettable from Soderbergh, you, you, right? You, you just aren't. I mean, the Ocean's films, for instance. Right. I mean, two is the second one. What is it? 13, is it 12, 13? No, it's 12 11. 13, yep. So 12, the middle one is okay, but still good. His Back then, his okay was still right. pretty damn good. Right. But anytime those movies are on, I'm mesmerized. Yeah. Because they're put together. Um, Logan Lucky didn't do that for me. This is a kind of film where if, if and I don't know if we're ever going to see it on, on a normal broadcast network or cable network or anything. Right. Maybe it's forever on HBO Max. I will go back to because it's that good. Um, it's slow to build. It, it's about three, for lack of a better term, thugs, criminals. I think it's set in the mid-60s, was it? or 50s? 1954. Mid-50s. And they're paid to do a simple job. Well, in the, in the criminal world, there's no such thing as a simple Never job. Never a simple job, you know. And the, the movie, it, it focuses on Don Chino's character primarily with Benicio Del Toro's being a, a close second. I like the way it fits the times with all the racial undertones. Sure, sure. Um, with, with the general arrogance of the powers that be in the... And the fact that he's very, very subtle with his overall message until the end. That's and and I don't, I'm going to spoil it. Yeah, we 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 don't make people like you and I don't make the rules, and that's that's just the reality of life. So, but he, it's it's got an interesting premise that I won't spoil. Right. Um, it's a basic thug film, and I I, I love the performances. After he got into a groove, it just breezed right along. Right. It looked of the era as far as its overall look, its its, its photography, the way it was filmed. It, it it looked like it could have been shot in, in 1950-something to me. It was it was and I laughed at parts. It it had a nice dark sense of humor. Yeah. And a it's couple funny. A few surprises, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, generally speaking, a very good cast. Brendan Fraser makes an appearance here as a mob boss. Brendan, Brendan Fraser, yeah. Um, and then Ray Liotta. It wouldn't be a gangster movie if you didn't have Ray Liotta or Al Pacino or someone like that. Ray Liotta fits in here pretty well. Um, yeah, I mean, universally well acted. Don Cheadle. I love Don Cheadle, first and foremost. I just wish you could just give him whatever he wants to do. Because he is, he just knocks that out of the park effortlessly all the time. Love Don Cheadle. 
give him every movie that he ever wants because he's like the guy that you want to see in every every movie, whether it's a, a big part or a small part. He just brings it all the time, and he's so convincing as whatever he's playing. Here he's playing, like you said, sort of a thug criminal who's just out of prison trying to, I guess, get to Kansas City, essentially, and uh, earn, a, earn a little bit of money on the way out. So uh, Cheadle's great. Del Toro's fine. Um, I, you know, I did get the, there obviously is some of those racial undertones. I don't think they really dug too deep into it. Though. I don't know if they dug into it enough for my, my thought. I thought it was more glossed over. Del Toro's character is a little bit of a racist. You see Not some a lot of the racist, but, 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 but the, the line that sticks out to me is talking about Cheadle to another thug in the film. He can't help that he was born that way. Like, Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And then there's some, some subtle digs about how the cut, how someone's going to get as much money as them, or they're not going to get as much money because Don Cheadle's black. So there are some some subtle, you know, nuanced little digs in there about the racial disparity and, and some of the racial issues going on. I don't know that they really like hammered at home, but I also don't want you to like hammer me over the head with it because we want to just see it organically. Um, but, you know, Without giving away spoilers, obviously this also connects to the auto industry, which in the 1950s is pretty huge in Detroit. Uh, there's a really fun, interesting cameo of a classic Steven Soderbergh actor that he works with, other than Del Toro and Cheadle, that comes in towards the end of the movie, uh, who does a fun job with it. Uh, there was one really, this is the only part that I thought was like the exact Steven Soderbergh movie, which was when uh, David Harbour's character goes to his boss's house and has to retrieve this document that's under lock and key, and he has to wrestle him essentially for it, fight him for it, and he literally, because it's his boss, is like telling him, hey, I'm going to punch you. This is my fist. I'm going to punch you right now, and that's like the classic, like, dark, funny, ironic you know, unintentionally, but really intentional, funny comedy that Soderbergh kind of tends to to throw into a lot of his movies. Um, kind of reminded me a little bit of like how he did The Informant back in, 29, in 2009, which was kind of one of those like buffoon Matt, Car Matt, Damon, Matt, Matt Damon characters who just was so clueless about everything going on, but it's just so funny in an unintentional, but yet sort of intentional way. Um, I like the, the the look of the film. It felt like 1950s Detroit. It kind of felt like a 1970s thriller too, a little bit with some of the music as well as some of the shots. Uh, Soderbergh's always kind of creative when he's you know setting up these shots with a cinematographer, no matter who it is, whether it's uh, you know sort of they almost had the reverse fisheye where it looked like it was sort of encapsulating the entire street where it looked like it was rounded off in a fisheye lens. See, I thought um, that was my glasses. <laughs> no, 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 it was not you. It was not you, George. It was me too, because I saw it. I'm like, oh, they're kind of it's kind of like a half fisheye almost where they're you don't want to go full on fisheye because they don't want it to look too jarring, but it kind of looked like they were in like a snow globe almost without the snow. So um you know really creative directing, good writing. I will say it's a little confusing at times to try to figure out what all's going on, who's double crossing who, who's triple crossing who. But at the end of the day, it's entertaining. It breezes by once you get to that. I think around the midpoint is where the movie takes off and becomes a really good heist movie slash crime drama, thriller, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, the first part where they're trying to set things up and you're, you're meeting new characters that you don't even get to meet kind of gets confusing. But thankfully, Don Cheadle's at the center of it. Brendan Fraser's hilarious in sort of this 
you didn't expect to see Brendan Fraser in a crime boss movie. So all in all, it works out pretty well. It's fun to see Del Toro and Cheadle on screen together as they kind of, you know, go back and forth. And I liked it. I, I did. I gave it three stars. I liked the movie. It wasn't great Soderbergh, but it was pretty good Soderbergh. I don't. What was your final grade for this? I I didn't even review it. This this okay. is what, if I did, it would probably be a B plus. Okay. But I this this is one of those. I knew it was coming. I knew it was going to be on vacation, so I didn't ask for a link. I just right. I let it wash over me the other night. It's like, yeah. And that, probably no one of those, it's probably one of those crime heist movies that would be better if you watch it a couple of times. Then you can really see what's going on and, and maybe remember, okay, I remember this thread from, you know, when I watched the first time and now I can connect the dots a little bit more either on that character or that storyline. So I think multiple viewings would probably, uh, you know, enhance this film a little bit even for me. Let's see. You mentioned the double and triple. I love those double because it kept me going as to yeah. what the hell is going to happen next. And then it's like a couple of those moments just make you go, whoa. Yeah. Well played. Well played. Yeah. And I like I like that Soderbergh kind of, you know, puts this in the backdrop of a reality of a situation where you have, uh, you know, the racial diversity, the racial tensions that are going on in the mid-1950s in Detroit, the housing market and housing issues for black owners, um, and then also, of course, the auto industry. We don't want to get too much into the auto industry's uh, role in this film, but everything kind of comes together in sort of a over-the-top meets reality, where it's a crime drama, where there's double crosses and triple crosses, while still being in sort of the reality of what 1954 Detroit was. So I think it worked out very well. I liked it a lot. And I, I'm, you know, something I'll definitely watch again, just to try to get more of the sort of the nuances of the story as well. Agreed. Okay, now you said you wanted to have a sort of a discussion here, sort of spontaneous off of uh, no, no sudden move. So what's what's your uh, What's your deal here? What do you got? No, it's the direct streaming element. Right. Let, let's be realistic. It's, couldn't get a studio to back this movie with this. Oh, you're kind of breaking up there a little bit, George. Great. It's it's I with as we get more back normal. I think this is where the, uh, these procedures go. You see it now. Okay, I think we got. Yeah, I think we got a little bit of a bad connection there, George. Well, I I know that you're talking about uh, the direct to streaming situation here. Um, hopefully you don't come back and I cut you off, but, uh, just maybe from my perspective on that, um, I, I do understand the idea that this is the kind of movie that you should probably find a studio for because it's the kind of movie that can make some cash, obviously. Um, but you know, George, I think I know George obviously is a theatrical guy. He likes to, to see the, the movies that come out in theaters, um, but, you know, from my perspective, I don't mind a movie like No Sudden Move coming to streaming devices. And and one of the reasons why is because these are the kinds of movies that won't necessarily be big box office winners 
for studios. And I think we've got George back um, as he's kind of connecting. I'll continue my, my, my thought here. You know, these are the kinds of movies that I think do pretty well for streaming because they're not going to be big box office movies. And I think the theatrical distribution side of things maybe gets too costly for movies like this. I know we we certainly saw some of that with the Irishman, the Martin Scorsese movie that, you know, studios just didn't want to touch because of the budget. And then, of course, then you'd have to distribute it through theaters. Now, it did get a small theatrical release uh, to, to qualify for the Oscars at that point. But, you know, movies like No Sudden Move, I think, are kind of built for streaming because, you know, you're not going to have big box office takes from it. So essentially what it's trying to do, I think is it's trying to provide extra, you know, incentive to get these streamers. I watched the movie on um, my 4K TV. It looked gorgeous in 4K HDR 10 plus. So from my perspective, it was something that I would probably wouldn't mind seeing in the theater, but it would also be something too that, um, you know, if I can watch it at home and, and save the theatrical prices, the ticket prices, I would do that as well. Not to say that it's not worth the price of an admission ticket. It's just sometimes, you know, people just don't have that kind of money to, to, to invest into many movies. And I think when you have movies like this, or for instance, the Boss Baby Family Business sequel, you know, that's the kind of movie that you can get in there theatrically. Okay, George is back. Um, I was kind of going on my my train of thought here. I think you were probably going to be talking a little bit, and I know you wanted to talk about the straight to streaming, and I'm assuming that you were hopeful that this would be a theatrical release. So I'll let you kind of finish your point, and I'll finish my my point as well. The reality is, is 15 years ago, this is released from, and I'm not going to entertain the the October crap. This is released November to the the end of December, and it's right. in. A, the in, in the Oscar conversation, sure, and and with Netflix not withstanding because they're trying to buy prestige by getting someone like Scorsese all the money in the world, right? Through his thing, I don't get the impression that this is a hundred and sixty million dollar movie. <laughs> no, it's probably more in the thirty-five to forty million dollar range, and I get the impression with some of these these directors who care about film, about cinema, that this is the new reality for them as far as they're Let me choose my cast and leave me the hell alone. And I'm going to give you a great film. Right. Well, it's interesting because we were talking about Logan Lucky before we got into this movie. And Soderbergh, in his return to cinema after being retired for four years, he actually financed that project completely himself. Now, obviously, it got uh, film distribution rights to theatrical release because it had, you know, Adam Driver, Channing Tatum, and, and Daniel Craig in the film. So they thought, hey, this movie could make some money. What I was saying as you kind of got cut off was that this is probably, you're right, 10, 15 years ago, this would be something that they would probably say, look, you know, we're going to try to push Don Cheadle as an Oscar contender or maybe, you know, some element of the film you know, of the film, whether it be set decoration or whatever it may be. But I think in today's world, this is kind of like 
what studios and streamers think of as the perfect streaming movie because it's not a movie that would likely make a ton of money box office wise. So we look at it like, hey, this is a chance for you to make this movie because maybe a movie like this wouldn't get made if you're talking about 35, 40, 45 million dollar production budget, knowing that you're probably not going to get even half of that at a domestic release. So I think it kind of makes this makes these movies get made more frequently now because there's a possibility that, hey, it's part of your package of HBO Max. People are going to stream it. It may not get a ton of streaming numbers, but you still have the prestige of a Soderbergh, Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro film that otherwise might not see the light of day from a studio perspective because you just can't guarantee that the box office is going to be there. Oh, I, I absolutely agree with you 100%. What's sad about it, though, and this thought hit me while I was dealing with my internet issues, you know, this is a movie like The Thing. Best Picture winner. Right. Paul Newman, Robert Redford, one of their classic films, and it wouldn't get made today. Yeah. It would not get made for the theater today. And it should. And I get what, what what people who own Disney and Warner Brothers are thinking, yeah, it's better off of streaming than their I'm always going to be the guy who wants to see a film at a theater. And it's kind of tragic to me that that's where this is right now. Yeah, it seems like it's either action blockbuster, $200 million budget or above, or almost nothing. I mean, you almost have to be a an indie darling and hope that, you know, these, it's kind of like what you would call like the mid-level box office movies, the mid-level movies that get the 35, 45, 50, 60 million dollar budgets that aren't quite that level that you know are going to take the money back and then some. But this is a movie that, you know, you you would probably can if you release it in theaters, it might be a limited release its first weekend or two. Maybe get a New York or LA or Chicago release, and then maybe spread out over the the course of the the fall and the winter to get you know maybe up to a thousand, fifteen hundred, maybe two thousand screens. Even though you have name recognizable stars, and you have a director that a lot of people respect, it's just people look at the movie and say, well, what's the appeal for it? Even though when you see it, there certainly is an appeal because it's a good movie. But I don't think, you know, you're trying to reach those Joe Schmoes out there that are determining whether or not they're going to go spend their $10, $15. Maybe this isn't the movie that appeals to them as so much as Black Widow does, for instance. And that's, I think, the disconnect in Hollywood is you've got the big blockbusters that get you know promoted and sold all the time. And then you've got smaller, really good movies that are better movies and better reflections of what the medium should be, which is art form. Not that they're not art form in the Marvel industry, but just a combination of, you know, of, of cinematography, of writing, of directing, of acting, of costume design, everything kind of comes together to make you feel like this is 1954 Detroit. And that's that's awesome. That's great. But, you know, unfortunately, it seems like the middle, which is a movie that I would say that this is in, it's in the middle ground where it's not the indie darling, where it's five million dollars to produce, and it's not the blockbuster that's hundred million dollars or more, where you're guaranteed to get that studio backing. Um, like I said, it's it's a tragedy. <laughs> it, is. it is. Well, because you know these are the types of movies. I mean, you mentioned the Sting. I mean, these are the types of movies that. 
you want to see, you want people to be able to make the movies that they want to make. And obviously, I know we've talked about it in the past where, you know, you make your big studio movie, then you can go make your passion project and so on and so forth. And, you know, it, it's and, and maybe Steven Soderbergh. I know his Let Them All Talk with Meryl Streep was a direct streaming last year on HBO Max as well. And maybe Soderbergh's just like, you know what? I don't need the studio backing. I'm Steven Soderbergh. I'm going to make a movie that I want to make. But like I said, I don't know, maybe no such move does not get made if it's not for HBO Max saying, you're Steven Soderbergh, go make whatever you want. And, you know, I I don't know if a studio, I don't know if a studio version of this would have been better, you know, with more money, you know, thrown at it. You know, there, there I could make an argument to, to really play up some of the housing discrimination and racial issues in the film. Maybe it could have been 10, 15 minutes longer and you have more building of that. But at the end of the day, I think he still made a good movie, and I'm sure he's probably pleased with how it turned out. I'm sure HBO Max is is pleased at how it how it right. turned out still. I'm just... I'm, it's sad. I, it, it's very sad, because it, for as much as I'd like a good blockbuster, and mind you, I, I'm of the Batman generation, the Tim Burton Batman... Oh, screw that. I'm of the Jaws generation. I'm of the Star Wars generation, right. but I, I can't help but think that mentality has evolved to the point where it's ruining the media. Yeah, I mean, to a large degree, you know, as much as we enjoy the, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I thought they did a really nice job spanning 20, 20 some odd films. It, it does kind of destroy the opportunity for studios to reinvest into other movies and other projects and other directors and other actors. So it, it's not just about the movies. It's about the people that are being, you know, courted for roles. I mean, obviously they're not going to recast Captain America every time out. They're not going to recast Thor or Iron Man. So then you've got one guy playing a, the same character in eight movies and that's an opportunity for money that could have been diverted to another project where you hire another actor or another set crew to, to do something. So it's kind of a trickle-down effect where not only is it the theatrical issues that we're seeing where movie theaters are closing or whatever it may be, or just there's not a lot of selection, or we have Fast 9, for instance, or we have, you know, sequels to Disney movies or whatever it may be, or remakes of Disney movies. You just wish that there'd be more creativity, but also those more grounded dramas that, you know, could get the money they need because, Martin Scorsese, when he says he wants to make a movie, you would hope that any studio would say, yeah, whatever you want. But then when he says, I need $200 million, they balk at it that it's not going to make the money. That ain't happening anymore for him. No. Not in the, the studio system. No way. No how. Yeah. And maybe it's maybe it's just, a, you know, you can't really do anything about it because, you know, you think about Steven Spielberg, you know, you would think he's the guy that could get whatever he wanted to do whatever he wants for a movie. And yet he's making Indiana Jones five and he's making, you know, he's, he's executive producing Jurassic park sequels so he can build up an empire and continue on. And he just cut a deal with Netflix. Yes, he did. <laughs> and he was one of the critics of Netflix. He was a critic of that, of that whole system, which again, you know, he's, I will say it's, it's bad for the box office. It's bad for theaters. But movies like this, I'm glad I got a chance to see it because even though it's something that I might have considered seeing in theaters because it's Steven Soderbergh and it's Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro, 
it's one of those fringe movies where, like I said, if it's a limited release, it may not come to Sandusky, Ohio, you know, or, it, you know, you may have to drive a distance and, you know, then you have to drive to wherever you got to drive to and then still buy your ticket. So, you know, I like the idea of streaming that gives these little smaller mid-level box office movies their opportunity in the sun, because that's what I think it is. But you're right. It's kind of crushing the theatrical system that was built on movies like Sudden Move instead of the Avengers, you know, trilogy or whatever it is, four or five movies. I got nothing better than that. <laughs> All right, George. Any any final thoughts or what are you what are you streaming now? What are you what are you watching on your your sort of your free time here on vacation? Actually, not a lot. Okay. I, I've taken a break from it all, you know, I had a, a barbecue here last week that I spent four days preparing for and I just, I, I, nothing. I've been watching reruns of stuff. Okay. No, nothing wrong with that. Well, I'm in a recliner and reading. <laughs> well, that's good. It's always good to have a little palate cleanser there. All right, George. Well, we definitely appreciate your time as always here today. Uh, we'll be seeing you next week. For everybody, uh, we are signing off. Go out there and go to the theaters. Find something to watch. Hi, I'm Jennifer Mooney. Welcome to what is our new Hope Interrupted podcast based on the work from our book, Hope Interrupted, that I co-authored with my good friend, Byron McCauley. Hey, Jennifer, you know, I'm looking forward to this podcast as much as I was look, looking forward to writing this book with you. We hope to interview some uh, high impact folks as well as have a little fun. We're going to cover stories of hope. To learn more about our podcast and our book, please visit www.hopeinterrupted.com.